Let's go to Daniel. After setting aside time last week to celebrate 44 years as a church, we return to our Wednesday night series through the book of Daniel, and tonight we begin a new chapter. And so we'll be in Daniel chapter 7. As we come to chapter 7, we find a shift in the overall flow of the book of Daniel. Generally speaking, the first six chapters are historic, dealing with events in Daniel's life, chronological through his time in captivity. But as we come to chapter 7 and through the end of the book, they are definitely prophetic. Chapter 1, it begins with Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem. Chapters 2 through 4 take place during his reign. Chapter 5 jumps ahead to Belshazzar's reign, but it's all chronological. The end of chapter 5, you'll remember, took us to the end, the Babylonian Empire and the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. And chapter 6 took place during the reign of Darius the Mede. By the end of chapter 6, we're told that Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and of Cyrus the Persian. But when we come to chapter 7, you'll notice here in verse 1, <clears throat> we're back to the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And, and from this chapter through the end of the book, it's going to deal with prophecies that Daniel receives and the interpretation of those prophecies. And i got to be transparent with you tonight and let you know that out of all the book of Daniel, chapter 7 intimidates me the most. You'll find a lot of varying opinions when it comes to this chapter on what people feel is the proper interpretation and I realize that what I present to you will just be another opinion. And my point is, please don't get sideways with me if you happen to disagree with me, if we have differences of opinion. I'm going to give you where I'm at as of now. As of now means I reserve the right to change my opinion should my understanding of this chapter grow in the future. And therefore, the study in this chapter may not satisfy your curiosity. But I'm not even sure Daniel was completely satisfied either as we read some of the statements he makes in this chapter. The first half of chapter 7, Daniel receives a dream and visions. And in the last half of this chapter, Daniel is given an interpretation with special attention to a particular area that troubled him greatly. So with that... I'd like to begin by reading the dream and visions of Daniel that he received in verses 1 through 14. We'll consider a few things, and then as time allows, we'll consider some of the interpretation of the last half of the chapter. And so I'll do my best to explain this to you to my current understanding. Look with me, please, in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. And then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. And the four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. 
The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Behold another beast, a second like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Amen and amen. What are we to do with all these beasts? In verse 1, we find Daniel, he receives a dream and visions while he's upon his bed. And before I get into the beast of this vision, I think it's noteworthy to highlight how Daniel has received this from God at a time when he was not engaged in the busyness of the day. There's a trend we're going to see in chapter 7 through 10. This vision comes at night. The vision in chapter 8 will be when he was by the river. The prophecy he received in chapter 9 came as he purposefully set his face to seek God by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And the vision he receives in chapter 10 came after Daniel had been in mourning for three weeks. And he says, I ate no pleasant bread and I ate no flesh. I had no wine and nor did he anoint himself. And so I believe there's a principle we can gain from this. And that is, if you want a deeper experience with God, and if you want to hear more clearly from God, then set aside some time to be alone with God. Amen. It's difficult to hear from God when we are cumbered about with so much busyness throughout the day. God often speaks in a still, small voice. 
And I'm convinced many don't hear from God like they should because there's so many distractions which occupy our day. We often wake up late and we rush out the door just to get to work on time. And then we're engaged with the activities of our work day. And we come home and we feel a need to unwind. And I can relate to that. And so maybe we turn on the television and instead of unwinding for a short period, we've now spent several hours in front of the television. That time of unwinding turned into binging. Amen. Whatever your unwinding activity is. Then we finally get into bed. But we often do so with a tablet or a phone in hand. We finally turn off everything and we go to sleep late so we can wake up late and repeat the process. We need to be more disciplined and make time to be with God. We need to make time to be in His Word and in prayer. Why should we expect God to commune with us when we won't take the time to commune with Him? But then people complain, I don't feel like I ever get anything from God and His Word. Well, it could be you're never mentally still enough to hear from God. We need to clear our heads. We need to set aside all the activity. We need to get alone with God and hear what He has for us. David said in Psalm 63, 6, When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And then in Psalm 119, 147, it says, I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in thy word. And that word prevented is one of those archaic words they like to say in the King James, and it means that he went before the morning. He, he, before the morning, before the day got going, he got up before daytime and was in God's Word. And so how's your quiet time with God? It needs to be purposeful, right? Not rushed. It, it needs to be purposeful before the distractions of the day get the better of you. Spend time with God. Be alone with God at day's end. Spend more quality time with God in the morning. And so here's Daniel upon his bed. His day has calmed down. His mind is settled, but not for long. He receives this extraordinary dream, these visions from God, and it made such an impression upon him, he gets up and he he writes it down. (sighs) Sometimes I wonder if he shouldn't have, then I wouldn't have had to have studied it. Amen. I'm only teasing. I'm only teasing. Now we're told in verse 1 how this dream and visions came to Daniel during the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now I believe this information is significant for us to consider in relation to this dream because by this point in history, the Judean captives are putting it together that 70 years is close to expiring. And I think that's really important as we consider why God is giving this dream to Daniel. I'll say more more about this when we get to chapter 9. But it was entirely possible that they were reading the prophet Jeremiah. They were reading about the new covenant out of the prophet Jeremiah. And that in connection with that new covenant, they were expecting the way they would have read it perhaps is that, you know what, after the captivity, the Messiah is going to come on the scene and He's going to establish this new covenant. 
And, and, and again, I'll, I'll get deeper into that in chapter 9. But it's, it's entirely possible that this was kind of the thinking and that this Messiah was going to arrive, establish the kingdom again physically, that Israel was going to be returned to their former glory, and that they were going to have peace and prosperity once again underneath the reign of this Messiah. But they were not looking for a suffering Messiah. And by the way, this is still a problem in Judea uh, when Christ finally did arrive. When, when He did arrive, those in Judea, they were looking for a Messiah that was going to be victorious physically, reestablish Israel, uh, start the kingdom back up. You know, they even said before He ascended, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And that was their thinking. And so it was a problem then. It was a problem in Daniel's day, I believe. And, and so they, they looked for this Messiah to take them out from Gentile dominance. But they didn't understand the need for a suffering Messiah. And as a result, Christ was missed at His first appearing. It wasn't until He resurrected even that the disciples started figuring this out. Amen. And, and so they, they missed the Messiah. It, now, I believe they were saved before the resurrection. That, that may have come out wrong. But their thinking wasn't entire. They didn't have the full picture. And, and so uh, that was the thinking at the time. And so they missed Christ. And, and let's not forget this, that the New Testament makes this clear, that the church was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. And it wasn't until Christ came that the church was established that some of this became, uh, began to become clear. And so I believe God, I said all this, I believe God gives Daniel this dream to clarify how Daniel's people should not be deceived by getting their hopes up thinking that at the end of this captivity, the Messiah would arrive on the scene and restore the kingdom back to Israel and everything was going to be great. But on the contrary, God is letting them know you're still going to have troubles. You're still going to have tribulation. You're still going to have persecution. It's not going to be, where's Pastor DeGarmo? It's not going to be sunshine and butterflies. And we can understand now, because we have the benefit of looking backwards, some of this prophecy has its fulfillment in the church age because Christ did establish a spiritual kingdom as a part of His first coming. And we'll get to all that later in this chapter. But even in today's time, we are told to expect tribulations, trials, fiery trials, hardships and afflictions and distress. We are born again into a spiritual kingdom. And so Jesus says you need to expect that the hard times are still going to come because your blessings and your prosperity is not dependent upon some earthly kingdom. But it is, it is found in Christ alone and in His kingdom, which is not upon this earth at this moment. Not physically. Now, we, we come to the beginning of the visions in verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. And so this starts with the striving for world power, world domination 
upon the earth as it is represented by these four winds of heaven striving upon the great sea. And we're going to see four beasts mentioned. I've already read it. There's going to be four beasts mentioned in the next verse, but I don't think the four winds necessarily are representing the four beasts. The term four winds is found in nine verses in the Bible. And when we compare Scripture with Scripture, and by the way, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, I believe the meaning is how the striving here, it is not going to be limited in scope. It is not going to be restricted to a small area. This is going to be far-reaching. And here's a good verse from Jeremiah to see how the four winds can represent this vast distance. Jeremiah 49.36 says, And upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and will scatter them toward all those winds. And there shall be no nation whither the outcast of Elam shall not come. And so these four winds, I believe, are representative of the vast scope of these empires that we're going to talk about. And we, we see how these four winds will strive upon the great sea. Well, what is that? I think Revelation 17.15 is helpful in trying to define what is likely meant by the great sea here in Daniel 7. In Revelation 7.15, we read this, And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so it is my opinion that the picture here in verse 2 is how these powers are going to arise from various places in the world. And these powers are going to strive for dominion over all peoples, all nations, all languages, all tongues. In, in verse 3 we're told, And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And then we get a description of these four beasts in verses 4 through 8. I'm of the opinion, and I think the vast majority of people are, in most part, are of the opinion that these four beasts are going to flow with the same thought we saw in chapter 2 and the four metals. Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. We're told in verse 4, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So if this is paralleling the image that we saw in chapter 2, then the beast of verse 4 represents the Babylonian Empire. As we studied Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in the previous chapters, we saw how special attention was given to their pride. They were very prideful and God had to humble them. And that kind of fits the swagger of a lion. And the lion is called the king of the jungle. They're known for their strength and their courage and their stately supremacy. And, and out of these empires... The Babylonian Empire was very nice. <laughs> it wasn't as rough as the other ones. It was the things that Nebuchadnezzar was able to build. Uh, some of those are part of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And, and so it was just an amazing place. 
And we understand the dominance of the lion when we consider how our Lord is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're told in Isaiah how none can deliver from the lion's mouth. The lion of Babylon had eagle's wings, which likely indicates the swiftness by which it was able to come upon their enemies and conquer them. And or it is describing the vastness of the empire as wings would would spread out, the wingspan. But we see that the wings were plucked off. And it would no longer go upon its legs like a beast. The lion was given a man's heart. In other words, this beast would lose its power. It would lose its fierceness. It would cease to be feared. And as we considered in chapter 2, the Medo-Persian Empire would take over. Which brings us to the beast of verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, Adrian. Right? And it raised up itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now a bear is less majestic than a lion, but it's just as feared. The posture of this bear, it is either one of aggression and pictures how it is rising up against the lion, or it is indicative of how the Persian Empire made up of two, the Medo-Persian Empire, that the Persian Empire would be the greater of the two and eventually take over. And that could be the picture here as well. We know a bear becomes very ferocious when someone comes in between a mother bear and her cubs. It becomes very voracious when it is hungry. And this bear is told to devour much flesh. And we're told the bear had three ribs in its mouth. Some see this as the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians being merged together into one empire. Not really merged, but as they were taken over, these all would become one. Some see this as the nations, the Medo-Persians defeated, namely the Babylonians, Lydia, and Egypt. And there are many other thoughts of people trying to figure all this out. It may just be a picture of the fact the thing was hungry and ate a lot. Amen. Next comes a beast like a leopard in verse 6. After this I beheld, and lo... Another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so this is now representative of the Greek empire. I believe the leopard here is pictured because of its speed. And this beast's speed is further depicted by this animal having four wings, two sets of wings. The lion only had one, but this beast has two, and the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, conquered nations with great speed. In fact, he had conquered really the known world by the time of he was about 30. And so it happened very quickly. We also see this beast had four heads. And some say, well, it's just so it can see in all directions. That may be. I think it's probably picturing the fact that after Alexander died, the Greek empire was divided into four quarters amongst four of his generals. And we'll say more about that when we get to chapter 11. And so the the Greek empire would be partitioned. 
Then in verse 7, a fourth beast rises. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We've been given the description of a beast like a lion, a beast like a bear, and a beast like a leopard. But when we come to the fourth beast, we find it is not given any likeness. And I believe this is probably to indicate how fierce this beast is. That there's nothing in the animal kingdom to really liken it to. And so it doesn't get a likeness. And therefore, I think we're meant to see this is more powerful than the previous three, which is also something we were told in chapter 2. This beast is said to be dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. The description of this fourth beast continues in verse 8. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So if this is in fact a succession of the four empires represented by the image of metals over in chapter 2, then this fourth beast would bring us to the Roman Empire. We're going to have to come back and finish all this next week. There's no way I'm getting to it all. And we're going to just kind of settle in on this fourth beast for a minute because this is the one that receives all the attention, really, uh, in the latter part of this chapter. So through the first three beasts, there really isn't much disagreement by, by people. There are some. Some spiritualize it and say that it's more talking about just the way the world operates and economies and this kind of thing and, and that it's just kind of picturing these social and, and judicial and all these kind of different areas of, of an empire. I, I think most, though, would agree that we're talking about actual empires that existed, and we'll see that later in this chapter, I believe. And, and so the first three beasts, there's not much dis- disagreement. You'll find differences of opinion, but most believe we're talking about the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. And and that's my position, by the way. I believe that's what this is saying. But there are many varying opinions when you come to the fourth beast. It has ten horns, and a little horn comes up among them. And so what is this talking about? I think Daniel was confident in what he believed the first three beasts represented. I believe he understood those to mean the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks, because he never mentions those three beasts. But he does bring up the fourth beast later in this chapter. He has some troubling concerns, especially as it relates to the little horn. In verse 11, Daniel hears a horn speak. Now forgive me, i got to jump around a little bit here. But in, in verse 11, Daniel hears a horn speak, which in context I believe must be the little horn, which was just mentioned in verse 8. In verse 15, Daniel was grieved in his spirit, and these visions troubled him. So in verse 16, Daniel asks for the truth of all of this, or he's asking, what's the meaning of all this? In verses 17 and 18, a very brief interpretation 
is given. I love how we get this very brief interpretation as if this was going to satisfy everything. These great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That easily fits the interpretation of Daniel chapter 2. But what is clear here is that the four beasts, we're told, represent four kings. We see that very clearly in Daniel in verses 17 and 18. And, and so, these are four kings. These are four kingdoms. And we also know from this short interpretation given in these two verses that God wins in the end. Whoop! We're on the winning side. And we'll be partakers of His victory. And we'll, we'll be given the kingdom. That's going to be our focus next time, I believe. Luke 12, 32, though, it says, Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But now, this answer in verses 17 and 18 wasn't enough to satisfy Daniel's curiosity. That's the interpretation though. And Daniel goes, this isn't enough for me. I don't, I don't understand this. And I'm glad he didn't. Because it means he was just a man like you and I. And if he needed or wanted clarification, whoop, I need or want clarification. Amen. Maybe I'm the only one excited about that, but I'm pretty dumb. And so look at verses 19 through 21. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Daniel says, man, I need more information. I appreciate the interpretation, but you didn't tell me what any of the, the horns mean. Certainly, the Roman Empire was diverse from the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks in, in a number of ways. One way is it went further west than the others, but probably... And it lasted longer than the others, but, but probably more diverse was the fact that it had, a, it had a different form of government. And so it was a different empire than the other three. One reason this beast is likely emblematic of the Romans was because it had great iron teeth. And you'll have to remember from chapter 2, we were told the two legs were iron, which represented the Roman Empire. And we're told over in chapter 2, that it was strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. That's very similar to what we read here of this fourth beast in chapter 7. And we get a new piece of information here with what Daniel is asking. Uh, notice he mentions here, we haven't seen this yet, but this beast had nails of brass. And this could just simply be further describing the power of this beast, the strength of it. But it may be also a picture of how the Roman Empire retained some of the nature of the Greek Empire. And you'll remember the, 
the metals of chapter 2, the Greeks were represented by brass. I don't know. In verse 20, Daniel wants to know what's with the ten horns. And how about this little horn that comes up before whom three fell? And I say, I want to know too. He mentions what he saw in verse 8 again, how this horn had eyes. It had a mouth to speak great things. But I think it is clear that the reason why Daniel is so concerned is because of verse 21. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. What? I thought we were on the winning side. And so Daniel was very concerned, and he should have been. As should all the children of God reading something like that. Well, in verse 16, Daniel had asked the truth of all of this, and the one who's giving Daniel this interpretation tells of this fourth beast and its horns in verses 23 through 26. Look at what it says. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, And another shall arise after them, and shall be diverse from the first. And he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. We can gather from verse 23, these beasts are four distinct kingdoms. I think this is clear. Therefore, this fourth beast or kingdom is separate from the first three. I know that sounds elementary, but stay with me because I'm I'm mentioning that to tell you Some are of the opinion, and I understand where they're coming from, that the little horn of the fourth beast refers to Antiochus Epiphanes of the Greek Empire. But if this flows consecutively from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans, then this fourth beast and this little horn cannot refer to someone who arises out of the third kingdom. Because this is the fourth kingdom. And so it must be Roman, not Greek. We're told in verse 24, the ten horns of the fourth beast are ten kings who will arise out of this fourth kingdom. And again, if this is referring to the Roman Empire, then it would mean at some point in their history, that empire would have been divided among ten kings. And I've searched high and low for an answer. And I can tell you there are a lot of opinions. There are many who have gone to great lengths to try and show how this was filled, fulfilled in the Roman Empire. Frankly, I'm not educated enough in the Roman Empire to be able to tell you one way or the other. I've read arguments for and against it. And honestly, those who believe that the Roman Empire was partitioned in, um, across ten kings, they don't even agree, uh, agree on what those ten kingdoms were. I'm really of no help to you tonight, amen? However, 
without trying to force any preconceived ideas of what we may want this to say, it is very clear the ten kings arise out of the fourth kingdom. And as I just mentioned, then the context of the little horn, which shall subdue the three kings, must remain in the context of this fourth kingdom. Now, I see no way around that. But next week, I'm going to give you some alternate views. There is compelling evidence, and and I've got to dig into this deeper. I spent most of the day today researching this man. There is compelling evidence to suspect that an emperor named Justinian would be the little horn rising up out of the Roman Empire. Why Justinian? He was a king out of the Eastern Roman Empire because the Roman Empire did splinter. There were different kings. And he was out of the, the East, what they called the Eastern Roman Empire. And he was diverse, as the language says in the text, from all others in that his goal was he wanted to reunite the entire Roman Empire back into one. And he was successful in bringing three. Secular history records that. It's not some Bible site. This was just a secular site that he was successful in getting three kings or subduing three. And and that fits what's talked about here concerning this little horn. Justinian, it says this little horn is going to change laws. When you study his life, the the predominant thing that's mentioned about him is how he changed laws. Um, That's what he was known for, codification of laws. And it's remarkable when when you read it. And it also talks about the changing of times, and he certainly fits that. He required a new dating system called the regnal year, where when you dated something, it must include the name of the emperor, and the first year was the year that he began to reign, right? And if I took over the world, I would change it to the Brooks calendar, amen? Day one, year one, I defeated you, amen? Well, he kind of had that mentality. And there's also an argument to be made for how he spoke great words against the Most High and he wore out the saints of the Most High. And i got to do a long story short. He identified as Catholic and he believed he was to be both the ruler of the empire and the spiritual leader of the Catholic Church. And so he regulated everything. In fact, he would install his own popes who he wanted to be uh, the pope. And I believe an argument can be made for how Justinian helped to cement the period that we call, it's, it's hardly ever called that anymore, but I still call it the Dark Ages. That period of time when anyone who bucked against the Catholic Church was put to death. And that was one of his agendas. If, if you went against orthodoxy, then you, if you were considered a heretic and you would be dealt with and you probably would even be put to death. And and so, Justinian, he's a viable candidate in my mind as being the little horn out of the Roman Empire. And I know for some of you that are big into all this prophecy stuff, you're probably thinking ahead to chapter 8, there's a little horn mentioned there. Well, I believe that little horn is probably Antiochus Epiphanes. But just because there's a little horn in chapter 7 and a little horn in chapter 8 doesn't mean that all the little horns are the same little horn. I'll talk about that more when we get further along in this book. So I believe he is a good candidate to fit this. And I didn't come up with that on my own. Amen. I'm not nearly smart enough. 
I, I had a book that I pulled off a pastor's shelf. There's many in there on Daniel. Most of them take the traditional approach. But this guy, he's got a little different uh, slant, and I thought, man, that's kind of interesting. He's the one that mentioned, I wish I could remember his name now, he's the one that mentioned Justinian. And so I got to studying this guy, and, and he does fit all of this. Now, what, what makes all this difficult, okay, is the fourth beast. The reason why the little horn is so controversial is because much of the language here, it fits the description of the one we call the Antichrist. There are striking similarities to what we read about the beast in Revelation, specifically Revelation 13, and what we've just seen with this fourth beast. I'll talk about that next time. We'll look at the similarities between uh, the beast of Revelation and this fourth beast of Daniel. But I want to leave you with something encouraging real quick. <laughs> Don't miss how these beasts are all under command. And, and that's ultimately, we can leave all the debate aside. If we don't see Christ in all this, we've missed it. And so the beast of a lion had its wings plucked off. It was given a man's heart. Well, who did that? The beast like a bear was commanded to devour much flesh. Who commanded it? The beast like a leopard had dominion given to it. Who gave it? The fourth beast will have his dominion taken away. Who took it? I, I didn't have time to get to it tonight, but I'm sure you all can tell the zenith of this prophecy is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thrones are going to be cast down by Christ. He will be given all dominion. And we're told in verse 14, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And in verses 18, 22, and 27, we are told how God will give this kingdom to the saints of the Most High, those who have been born again into His kingdom. So, I tell you, as I've been telling you through this book, let not your heart be troubled. You say, man, I don't want to see a beast with four heads on it. I got that. Let not your heart be troubled. God is in complete control. He is on the throne. He is ruling from on high. His purposes will be fulfilled upon the earth. And that's the overall theme of the book of Daniel. He's in control. He's sovereign. While His saints will suffer in this world, God wins in the end. And we will be partakers of His victory. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray.